Have you ever wondered or asked yourself, what's my purpose in life? Over six immersive days at Date With Destiny, Tony Robbins can help you find the answer, providing you tools to shape your destiny and design the life of your dreams. Date With Destiny is Tony's favorite event. It's the one that you might have seen in the Netflix documentary, I'm Not Your Guru. Here's what happens at this event. You start by gaining a deep understanding of what truly motivates you. Then you identify the triggers that create pain and pleasure in your life and learn the strategies to eliminate pain for good. Finally, you learn how to ignite or reignite your passion to achieve your ultimate vision of your life, career, finances, health, and relationships. As Tony says, it's in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. This is your chance to make the ultimate breakthrough and start living the life you desire and deserve. To learn more about Day With Destiny, go to tonyrobbins.com forward slash destiny. Be a man. Man up. Start acting like a man. These are things we hear all the time, in the locker room, in the media, in our own homes. We've been conditioned to adopt certain beliefs about what masculinity is, and we force it upon others and upon ourselves. But what has this cost us? Hey guys, it's Annie York, Editorial Director for Robbins Research International. In this episode, I'm sitting down with entrepreneur, performance coach, and host of a top-ranked podcast, Lewis House. By all accounts, Lewis had always fit the cultural idea of what a masculine man should be. He was a two-sport All-American who went on to play football professionally. He built his podcast, The School of Greatness, into a global phenomenon. And he was becoming financially and professionally successful beyond his wildest dreams. But he soon realized that his whole identity was built on these misguided beliefs about what masculinity was. Dangerous, false ideas learned from teammates and coaches in locker rooms and stereotypes in the media. And like so many men, Lewis grew up to be angry, frustrated, and always chasing something that was never enough. So at 30 years old, Lewis began a personal journey to shed the many masks that he and so many other men wear and to discover who he is at his core. He sought advice from some of the world's best psychologists, doctors, and household names like Tony Robbins. And he documented everything he learned in his latest book, The Mask of Masculinity, How Men Can Embrace Vulnerability, create strong relationships, and live their fullest lives. We talk about the ultimate emptiness of the material mask and the man who chases wealth above all things. We discuss the cowering vulnerability that hides behind the stoic masks of men who never show real emotion and the destructiveness of the invincible and aggressive masks worn by men who take insane risks or who can never back down from a fight. Lewis also opens up about his own struggles with the masks he's worn and how he's learned to break through the walls that held him back so he could truly find himself and, ultimately, how he could find true happiness. Enjoy the episode. Lewis Howes, welcome to the Tony Robbins Podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's so exciting to have you on the show. Um, One of the reasons we were really excited about this is because your new book, The Mask of Masculinity, is something that we believe that everybody can benefit from, men and women. Um, But to start off, I'm kind of wondering, you know, you had this group book, The School of Greatness, um, and that had extraordinary success. Um, Mm. But... Clearly, this has been stewing with you for some time because um, now you're putting out this book and sort of wondering, you know, this is something that has, has sort of boiled to the surface. A lot of people are talking about uh, masculine, masculinity and some of the inherent 
um, mm. issues that we're having as a society with traditional concept of masculinity. But why now? Like, why did you decide to add your voice to this conversation and, and talk about your personal experience and share the learnings of everybody that you've been interviewing? Mm. Well, for four years ago, I finally opened up about a secret I'd had for my whole life for 25 years and I never told anyone and that was being raped and sexually abused by a man when I was five that I didn't know. And for 25 years, I held on to that along with the anger, resentment and frustration of, you know, just being bullied as a kid like I think most kids get. Uh, I was in the special needs classes for just I was dyslexic growing up and I couldn't really comprehend or understand reading, writing, just any type of studies. It was really challenging for me. Um, I was picked last a lot on sports teams. So all these things kind of boiled up. But I never told anyone about the sexual abuse until four years ago. And I had a moment in my life where I was going through a, a challenging breakup where it was kind of one of those eight-month breakups that you couldn't actually cut the cord. You just kept getting back together and breaking mm -hmm. up. And one of those experiences, I didn't have the emotional capacity to to, to leave, to end it, and to be alone. I, I felt like I couldn't find that intimacy somewhere else, and I was scared to, to lose it. And that with a combination of just getting more angry a lot of times. I felt more and more defensive throughout the process of this relationship breaking up. I felt so guarded and defensive when people were saying things about me online, about my work. When I would play sports, I'd play a lot of pickup basketball. I just found myself constantly wanting to fight people. I was just always defensive, wanting to fight people, and I didn't understand why. And it was until one day I got in a pretty bad fight on a – on the mean streets of West Hollywood, California, in, in a zero-stakes basketball game, I, I lost it. I got in a really bad fight uh, with someone I was guarding, ended up putting him in the hospital. He was okay, but we were both after each other, um, kind of going back and forth, and I just kind of snapped and lost it. Um, and it was, that was a big wake-up call for me where I was like, who am I? Why am I allowing my anger to get the best of me in in something that doesn't matter. Even if it did matter, I shouldn't let my anger get the best of me. And why? I just didn't understand why. And the majority of the time, I was a loving, happy, joyful, passionate man. But for some reason, there were these things in intimate relationships and things when other men would you know, say things to me that would trigger me and just blow me off. That's when I started to discover and do a lot more work. Um, you know, I went to UPW, I went to other emotional intelligence workshops. And there was a workshop I went to where I finally uh, opened up about being sexually abused. There was a moment after a few days of the workshop where we would covered a lot from our past and parents challenges and relationship issues. And it was it was very vulnerable and people were crying. And there was a moment where the trainer said, OK, we've covered everything from the past. And if there's uh, if there's something you haven't shared yet. We're moving forward in the future, so now is the time to, to talk about it and address it. it. Otherwise, forever hold your peace type of moment. Mm. And I walked through in my mind. I was like, you know, my parents getting divorced. I've addressed that and them fighting all the time as a kid, me getting bullied and picked on and feeling stupid every single day in the special needs classes. Uh, you know, my brother went to prison for four and a half years when I was eight, so I didn't have friends during that time. And that time I was raped by a man and I just kind of was walking through my mind and I was like, oh, wait a minute. 
why have I never addressed this ever to anyone in my life, this time of this sexual abuse? Why was I so ashamed of it? Why was I so embarrassed by it? Why was I so guilty that this had happened? And I just felt like I had to share in that moment at this, this workshop. And so I walked up in the front of the room. I didn't even raise my hand. I just stood up and walked to the front of the room. And here's the thing. I wasn't able to look anyone in the eyes. I stared down at the ground the whole time. And for the first time, walked through the moment step by step of that time when I was five. And after that, I walked back to my seat sat down and it was like this eruption of tears that I have never experienced. It was just like, I couldn't control my body. I couldn't control anything. And so grateful that these two unbelievable women were sitting on both sides of me and they were just like holding me. They were crying. We were crying. I ran out of the room because I was just kind of like embarrassed. I was just like, no one's going to accept me. Uh, you know, I feel miserable I ran out of the room outside of this kind of hotel conference ballroom area into the outside to get some fresh air. And there was a wall, uh, like a fence type of wall thing, um, just past a kind of a back street that I ran to and, and put my head against the wall, put my arm in, in my face because I was like embarrassed to look up. And I was just crying. And one of the most beautiful things that probably ever happened in my life was what happened next. And one by one, all the men of this workshop, there's about 50 people in the workshop, came up to me and looked me in the eyes with the most vulnerable, loving energy and just continued to tell me things like, you're my hero. Like, you're my hero. I went through something when I was younger that I've never told anyone. People And people who didn't go through sexual abuse were just like, wow, I, I've been judging you. I've been mm. thinking of you as a certain person, but... That just takes so much courage, and I've never had the courage to share certain things about myself. People were like, I trust you fully with my life. Like, I will follow you anywhere. They, just the things they were saying to me, I was like, really? Like, you mean me sharing the thing I'm most terrified of and just opening up about thing, something that I'm not proud of is bringing me deeper connection and, and relationship with these people in this workshop? And I was like, Wow. So little by little, like I went back in the room and sorry, I'm taking a while to describe this, but I went back in the room and it took me a while to kind of like feel okay. I was handling all these emotions. Thankfully, like this group of people were supportive and, you know, encouraging and, and no one, no one denied me connection. No one made fun of me. No one rejected me. No one told me I was less of a man. And I think I was always trying to defend my masculinity and defend my manhood from kind of a combination of all these experiences. It wasn't just the sexual abuse or all, it was everything combined. And I, I started, people were like, you should share this with your family. And I was like, no way. Like my mom will be horrified. My siblings will be, you know, heartbroken, heartbroken. And I just realized little by little, like I should share it with my family. And I started sharing it with my siblings and my mom. And yeah, it was challenging for them. But what I realized is, wow, they started opening up to me about so much that I didn't know about my own family. Like each one of them, when I told them one by one, started revealing crazy stuff that they didn't feel comfortable with either. And it 
built a deeper relationship with my family. Then I started sharing with some close guy friends, some close girlfriends one by one. Same thing happened. Like I built deeper relationships. There was less judgment between us. There was less resentment, things like that of stuff in the past. It was just like, wow, I, I see you. I get you. I'm, I'm here for you. Then my friends were like, you should share this, you know, to your broader audience, like on your podcast. And this was about four years ago. And I was like, no way. I was like, there's no way I'm putting this out there to the world. Uh, you know, I don't want to hurt anyone. Like, I don't want people to really, I don't want the world to really know about me. Like, it's okay for close friends and family, but yeah. if the world knew about me, you know, my business would suffer, like all these other things that I was uh, afraid of. Right. After about six to eight months, I just had more and more conversations with, with, um, people kind of in my space and, female influencers like Glennon Doyle and Gabby Bernstein and kind of that, that theme and Marion Williamson and just like spiritual leaders that I respected in the, in the, the female space. And they were like, this is one of the most powerful things you'll ever do with your life is share this story because sure you've got, you know, your athlete, you've got businesses, you've got your podcast, your books, all these things are, you know, they're great. But if you want to make a real impact in the world, like men are suffering so much they feel like prisoners inside of their hearts from the pain, trauma, insecurities, fears, doubts, the things they're not able to share because of society's pressure or family or whatever it is, whatever their fears are. And so I leaned into that. I said, okay, I'm going to trust you guys. I'm going to do this. I'm going to share it on my podcast. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying for me to kind of share it. And I don't recommend anyone who's been through some type of uh, past trauma to just like start opening up to the world about it. For me, I just felt like I had a responsibility because I've never seen a tall white male jock football player, business person openly talk about it. I, I just, maybe I've seen it in the past. I just can't remember it being this like common thing. And I realized I get to set an example and start talking about this. So I, so I talked about it on my podcast about four years ago, and for weeks, it was an unbelievable, it was crazy and unbelievable experience at the same time, because for weeks, I was getting hundreds of emails from men who were writing essays about the time they were sexually abused, about way worse stuff than I went through. I mean, the stuff that I went through was looked like a, a PG-rated movie compared to the emails I was getting from these men, and it was so saddening to me. But so many of them continue to tell me, thank you for giving me permission because I've been married for 20 years. My wife doesn't know. My kids don't know. My, no one knows. And I've never known how to handle it. I've never known how to communicate it. I've never known how to express it, how to address it, how to deal with it. And so these things come up where we wear certain masks through the research of this. I was like, okay, let me learn more about this because I don't know I just know my own experience. So I started researching and interviewing psychologists who work with uh, young boys to teen boys to adult men. And I started asking them these questions like, why do when men wear masks? Why do men feel like we have to project our masculinity into the world with relationships, business, career, family? Why do certain men drive to conquer every woman in the world? Why are some men aggressive? Why are some men leading with humor in every situation, even when it's not appropriate? Why do men show no emotion at all? I just started asking these questions. Why do men 
to feel like they're the smartest people in the world and they're always right and everyone else is wrong? Why do they have to win at all costs? I just started asking these questions and then the research was just blowing my mind about how one in six boys, men, have been sexually abused and how men commit way more uh, suicide and suicide attempts than women. And it just started to add up for me Mm -hmm. that through my own personal experience, um, I started to realize that, wow, so many men are suffering, just like I've been suffering inside my whole life. Even though I have fun, I'm joyful, I'm expressive, there was always this aggressiveness, this resentment, this unforgiving nature that I had inside that I couldn't figure out what it was. I couldn't figure out like how to actually feel fulfillment. Every time I achieved my athletic goals, my financial goals, whatever it may be, achievements, it never felt fulfilling. It was like, I'm still not enough and I need to go prove to the world that I'm man enough or worthy enough of their love and attention. So I would go strive for bigger goals and the pattern would continue. And I was like, why am I frustrated? Why am I angry? Why am I unhappy in these moments when everyone else is like saying, wow, you've had, you've got it, Lewis, you've made it. You hit the New York times list. You've made millions of dollars. You've, you were a professional football player. You've, You've got the life. But for me inside, it was like, but I'm suffering and I don't know why. And so I realized that this for me to, to, to bring a long story to, to a close, I realized that this was the most impactful part of my journey as an adult was opening up about my insecurities, my fears, my uh, past traumas that I didn't want anyone to know. And when I finally took off these masks that I was living with and revealed myself and just said, here's who I am to the world. It was like the world accepted me. And what do you know? My business took, took off. My relationships took off. My connections with my family took off. Uh, you know, everything took off and it's been a four year journey of constantly, recognizing when my masks come back on and and being aware of it and constantly making mistakes. It's not like it just is all better overnight. It's a journey. And that's why I wrote the book for myself first. But, um, it's, it's been the most meaningful thing to start to understand how to process emotions differently with more emotional intelligence, with more, you know, I think what Tony calls an emotional fitness and having that capacity to express yourself, whether it be through journaling, through talking, through just screaming it out or crying it out, whatever it may be. It's just been an unbelievable journey for me over the last four years. And I feel like the, why now the conflict that we are facing, even last night or two nights ago with the Vegas shootings, I'm not sure when this podcast will be out, but just the Vegas shootings, the, Mm -hmm. the racial, uh, tension, the political tension, the environmental tension, a lot of these things are due to fears that men are facing or hurt or pain or trauma that men are holding on to mm-hmm. and are projecting that I need to be right. I need to win. I need to be safe. That means everyone else needs to be wrong. They need to lose and they need to be in trouble, but I need to protect myself and what I believe in to make sure that I'm like the ultimate man here. And it's killing us. It's killing us inside. It's killing our relationships and it's killing the world. And that's why I feel like this is the most, for me, the most important thing that I could be working on. It's the scariest thing for me to talk about because in every, you know, every interview, every chapter of my book, I, I knew that I had to go there in every case 
as an example for how I've failed as a man or a human being to really resonate with other men and, and show that, like, hey, I'm showing all of myself, everything I'm embarrassed of, ashamed of, guilty of, all the lying, stealing, cheating, hurt that I've done to myself or others. Here's what it was. And here's how, in some ways, it worked. Like wearing the material mask drove me to make millions of dollars. It worked. So there's mm -hmm. this like false sense of. Yeah, you get rewarded. Yeah, it's like it worked. Yeah. The sexual mask, you know, when I got hurt by one girlfriend and was like, I'm never going to let a girl hurt me again. And I'm going to have every woman desire me. It worked. I got all I had sex with lots of women. I had lots of different relationships, but I never had that true intimacy. But it was like, I'm achieving. I'm creating. I'm doing this. So look at me. You know, all these things, they work. So it's like this false lie of trying to fit in and trying to feel good. But at the end of the day, it's not bringing true fulfillment. And and that's why I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking that it, it kind of comes down to these two things, pain and insecurity. And yeah. a lot of men feel these two things, whether it's, you know, everybody has pain. It's just, you know, level of pain that you're in and then also how you cope with it. And, you know, your your story about, you know, being aggressive and getting to that fight on the basketball court, um, clearly you had a pain and you're trying to escape that pain. So you inflict mm. pain on others. It's like, you know what they say, hurt people, hurt people. Exactly. Um, and so that turns into anger, which turns into violence. Um, and that's, I think that's a big mask that a lot of, not a lot of men would maybe admit that they have because aggressiveness, you know, verbal or physical, because remember they come in both, you know, shapes and sizes, Absolutely. Um, is something that, yeah, they're sort of taught that that, that's what being a man is, is covering up your pain and then just behaving in ways that, you know, sort of more acceptable um, as a definition of, of being a man. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, and the challenge is there was nothing in school growing up and my, my parents, you know, they were, you know, passive aggressive with each other. So I didn't have like examples of, oh, here's how you process your emotions. Because for me as a, you know, good old Ohio Midwestern boy who played sports and, um, you know, it was not cool to show your emotions at school. It was not cool to, to show your sensitivities on the football field. It sure. was just constantly like, don't be a wuss. Don't be a little girl. Don't be a, you know what? And in order to just fit in, you had to do what other people wanted you to do in middle school and high school. Otherwise you didn't fit in and you were a loner. Or you were the one they constantly bullied or made fun of. And it's just hard to have that emotional capacity to be like, no, I'm going to stand for, for what I believe in at like seven years old and just like sit by myself at the cafeteria. You just kind of get into the, the swing of like, well, let me just go with the flow and fit in because I'm sick of being alone, especially when all this stuff is happening at home or, you know, my brother's in prison or whatever's going on. It's just like, that's my come from. Yeah. And I never learned like, the best way to express myself. Yeah. And I'm glad Whether, you mentioned yeah. sports because sports provides that discipline and depth. Like you oh, can yeah. use it as an outlet for your aggression. But a lot of, I mean, I was in high school in the Midwest as well and played a ton of sports. And it's that feeling of, you know, you have all these emotions and, you know, as a, as a girl too, right. I had lots of girlfriends. Mm -hmm. um, so I had that outlet for emotional 
um, for emotional support, but then sports is also a way to sort of get that out. Um, exactly. but, but sports, and then also, you know, too, sports serves as like a social connection. So if you're mm-hmm. alone sitting by yourself, as opposed to being on a field with all these other people, even if they're not your bestest of friends, it doesn't matter. You still have that bond. Yeah. Now sports, sports gave me everything, but it also paradoxically, it, you know, it hurt me in some ways of, it's hard to switch it off being like the, the aggressive killer on a football field and then just be like this loving, sensitive, vulnerable man, you know, 30 minutes later, it's hard to like switch it off when it's just ingrained in you to hit and inflict as much pain as possible for three hours a day. And then be loving, be vulnerable, be tender right afterwards. So again, no excuse or, you know, it's just like, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to kind of dance in those emotions. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned your parents were great parents, but they were just doing the best that they could. And I, I know, I mean, I have two little boys and one of my fears is that I'm not going to a protect them from pain. I mean, that's every parent, right? They want to protect their kids from experiencing pain. But pain is a part of life, so it's going yep. to happen to them. It's going to happen in the schoolyard. It's going to happen outside. It's going to happen when they're 28 years old and there's nothing you can do about it, right? But especially when they're kids and they're vulnerable, you want to protect them. But you also right. want to be able to nurture them and you want to be able to give them those emotional tools. So what would you say to the parents out there if they have boys? Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and, you, you know, and I've actually run into this sometimes. I, I I'm no kidding. I'm guilty of saying like, stop crying, uh, <laughs> you right? know, just stop crying. And I'm more likely yeah. to say, stop crying to a boy than a girl. And that's mm, problematic. Why is that? That exactly. Why is that? Is it because I have this idea of what, that, that boys are not supposed to cry? Probably. Is that a healthy thing? No, it's not. But it's so ingrained in us. So, you know, what would you say to parents who are sort of, you know, fathers and mothers who are looking at their kids and thinking, you know, I, I don't want them to be in therapy mm-hmm. years down the road. I don't want them to have to feel like they have to put on these masks to cover up their pain or their insecurity or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think I think it's first being aware of like your language and your energy towards the the, the young boys in your in your family because I mean I was probably one of the most sensitive kids like I was just as sensitive as any young girl maybe even more so I cried all the time as an early kid I remember just always feeling alone and I was the youngest of four and I felt like no one you know wanted me kind of the similar things that probably all uh last child's feel right I just felt like I was by myself I was like too young to get it from any of my older siblings or whatever. Yeah. And can, I, can I ask you something? Because Tony yeah. that would completely ask this question. So out of between your father and your mother, whose attention and love and care did you crave the most? Like who were you always trying to please and gravitate toward? You know, to be honest, I'm not even sure to be honest because I would think I was just like wanted anyone's attention. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> You're like, hey, look at me. I just, I just wanted anyone's attention. I wouldn't remember. I remember like five, six, seven years old. I would wake up in the middle of the night screaming, crying, like crying for my mom. So I would wake up and like cry for my mom, and I wouldn't stop screaming and crying until she would come and sleep next to me. Like that was, I rem- vividly remember that. I don't even even told people this because it's like a mass that I don't want people to know that I used to do this as a kid. But yeah, it's like but I this remember. This is so normal. This is com- yeah. so completely normal. I would, I would, yeah, I would cry and be like, "Mom!" Like screaming, "Mom!" Like the top of my lungs until, yeah. like someone was trying to kill me until she came in 
and literally started singing lullabies to me, like somewhere over the rainbow. Or I remember she would sing Fievel to me. Uh, what's the song in Fievel? Uh, oh, somewhere out there. Or, yes, somewhere yes, out there. Yeah, she would sing that song to me. Oh, I vividly remember this, and it would put me back to sleep. And then I would literally like snuggle and like spoon my mom because I was just like so terrified to be alone. Yeah. And I think maybe I just didn't feel like I was getting, they were there for me. They tucked me in, you know, they told me they loved me, all those things. But I just, it was a story I was telling myself that I wasn't getting the attention I wanted or needed or whatever. And I think my, I was always afraid of my dad. My dad was like the larger than life. He worked late hours like and was he just never seemed happy until yeah. I was about 13 he was always frustrated and uh, I think it's because you know he and my mom got married when they were like 19 because they got pregnant and they had to give up on their dreams to provide for their kids now and um, I think he was just kind of always resentful that he wasn't able to live his dream until my parents got divorced when I was a teenager then they were both like the happiest ever so I associated like marriage with unhappiness and mm. anger mm -hmm. and then freedom when they were divorced. You know, I was like, <laughs> why would I ever want to go through that experience again where I felt, you know, I saw my dad and my mom feeling trapped. Like they were, they weren't able to do what they wanted to do. They just had to work all day for the four kids. And what I was mask like, do you I don't think your that. father was wearing? Oh man, he was, yeah, yeah, I mean, he didn't really use humor much, so he wasn't wearing the Joker mask, but he was aggressive. He was he wasn't really materialistic. He was a know-it-all for sure. He was mm. like he was the one that made you feel dumb and because yeah. he wasn't trying to, but he just he was just like a, an encyclopedia. He like won Scrabble games every time. He like knew what every word was in the Latin meeting and he used his intelligence and his voice, like his loudness to just make you feel like, wow, he's smarter than me. And, um, yeah. So, and some of the alpha mask. So for me, it was, uh, it was just challenging. It was just challenging because I, I think I wanted everyone's approval. I'm not sure. I, you know, I'd cry for my mom. I was afraid of my dad until I was a teenager. Then he started to, he transformed into the most loving, giving father. Like wow. it was unbelievable what happened. He transformed it was kind of before they got divorced, he started going through some of his own emotional intelligence training. He started letting go of his own traumas and pains, I believe. Uh, and so for about 10 years, I had like the, a best friend. Like he was always there for me, supporting me until he got into a, a really bad car accident when I was 22 and was in a coma for three months. We didn't know if he was going to make it or not. He's still alive today, but he's not emotionally there. He's not the man he was and it's like kind of talking to a teenager who forgets things every day he forgets me and the past and uh kind of just doesn't care about life as much anymore and so it's like my father died you know 10 years ago but it's even though he's still around so that's a whole nother story of like what it's like to lose uh, essentially lose the emotional relationship with a father and what that, you know, triggered in me to start unlocking something in myself as well. Yeah. Well, it sounds too like your emotional relationship with your father started late. And that's something yes. I think every guy out there who's in his 30s and 40s and is, you know, has children or is thinking of having them or even just in his relationships with his, um, you know, his partner or even at work, you know, just the people around him. Um, when you 
start tearing off your masks later in life, it is, it's like a rebirth, right? You sort of, you know, you no longer have to be on all the time. And there's actually a quote from John Updike that you have in your book. And it's, um, celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of disgusting, but yeah, right. uh, right? But it's that, that feeling uh, that you're never really yourself. Um, and you know, I guess I'm sort of wondering, you know, for guys who undergo their emotional journeys later on in life, um, it's clear the impact it has on their, on their friends and family, right? It's clear yeah. that, in, especially in your case, you know, you established this relationship with your father that you could not previously have done before. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but do you think that, I mean, I mean, is this how men feel all the time? Are they, are they aware of it? And that's the thing. I was yeah. not aware. I was yeah. just like, why am I angry? You know, I was like, <laughs> but I never even thought like, why am I angry until all these things happened at 30? Like for, it was just kind of like a collection of events where mm, I was it's achieving like a perfect at storm the, for a yeah, well, I was just like, yeah. I was achieving everything at the highest level of my career. I was overcoming those obstacles. I was like building a brand. People were recognizing me, you know, I could in my head, like go pick up any girl I wanted to with my ego being that big Dan. I was like, oh, I can do anything I want. Like I'm, I'm doing it all. And yet, why was I so unfulfilled, like constantly? Like, why was it never enough? Why, why couldn't I celebrate my wins? It was just like, no, it's not good enough. We need to go prove that I'm worthy to everyone else even more. And I'm not sure if this is what every guy feels. I don't want to generalize it, but I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of guys aren't aware of the things that are holding them back emotionally. They just feel like, from my own personal experience, we just feel like, this is the way life is. Yeah, status and, quo, right? This is yeah, it. Yeah, and until and until we go, I think we need an interruption. This is why when people go to date with destiny, it's like this is a massive interruption for a week where people are seeing themselves in a mirror for the first time and are given are seeing examples of other people opening up and seeing ways that they've been hurting themselves their entire lives for the first times. And so it's like an awakening. It's like, wow, I'm now aware, but there needs to be some catalyst some opportunity for breakthrough and until there's uh, either a breakdown or a big transition point in life you know most people it's a near-death experience it's a death in the family it's a cancer scare it's a breakup with a a marriage where it's like okay now i'm awake something isn't working Mm -hmm. now i need to figure it out and so for me things were working on the surface like i was getting results so i was like no my life is good but on the inside, I didn't have the inner peace and the inner fulfillment. I wasn't living in, you know, a beautiful state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that was – I just didn't know why. I was like, what is going on? So it took me that that catalyst. And to answer your question before about what should parents do or how mm-hmm. should they connect with their young boys, I'm not a parent yet. But what I can speak to is from, uh, you know, a son's point of view, all I really was looking for was acknowledgement. And like someone to look me in the eyes and just acknowledge me for the good that I was doing as a kid. And I think you even mentioned it that you'll see, you'll catch yourself where you'll be like, stop crying to like a young boy mm-hmm. as opposed to focus. And I, and I get it. Like as a parent, you're like running around, you've got tons of stuff going on. And if a kid's crying for like two hours, you just got to be like, okay, I, I can't deal with this. But when you can, when the things have like settled down, find a time Maybe it's a weekly, maybe it's daily where it's just a moment where you get to acknowledge like, I'm so proud of you for this. Uh, You're doing such an incredible job of, you know, 
being this way. And I just want to tell you, you're doing a great job. Like that's all I wanted was someone to acknowledge me and to see me and to just say, you're doing good. Like we love your positive energy, like focusing on the good as opposed to saying you're bad boy, you're bad. Like stop doing this, go clean your room, stop doing that. It's like constantly fixating on what boys aren't doing as opposed to the good that they are doing, I think is a simple switch that will hopefully once done consistently over time, start to see a shift in their reactions as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because there's, there's also this idea of actively not acknowledging the things mm. that society acknowledges as being very yes. masculine, like being yeah. brave or, yeah, being strong or, yeah, yo, you're so smart. You know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. Um, that's such a funny joke or, you know, yes. that those are the types of things that reinforce the behavior that they then, you know, sort of perpetuate um, in their adult yeah. life. Yep. But I think like, you know, a well-rounded human is what we should all be focusing on. Someone who is, you know, smart and strong, but also who can be tender and vulnerable and artistic and, you know, incorporating these other parts of language and culture and music and arts and dance into all of our children, not just like, okay, girls are going to be involved in dance and Barbies and boys are going to be in soccer and whatever football. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can we incorporate more of building, you know, well-rounded, I call it decathletes of life. I was a decathlete uh, in college and I call it like I feel like I'm a decathlete of life. I'm just constantly trying to learn new skills. I'm mm -hmm. playing guitar, salsa dancing, learning Spanish. I'm just trying to learn different things that normally a guy that looks like me, you wouldn't think would learn. Who is this like tall, white, you know, six, four jock guy. You don't, you're not going to see that guy in a salsa club, but I've been salsa dancing for 13 years. You're not going to see that guy doing certain things, tap dancing. Like I'm always trying to learn new things that could make me see things differently, have a different perspective about what people who, who do these things are thinking and feeling. Because I think as a, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur and as a, uh, a, a business owner, like the, to be a great leader for me is to understand people from where they're coming from, not for hoping that everyone understands me for where I'm coming from. And I think that's how I'm able to build what I want and create what I want is to understand people. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, Lewis, I wanted to go through, because, you know, you've got these eight masks here, um, and I picked three of them that I thought were the most interesting um, from the female perspective, because cool. they are masks that I think a lot of women, if they're dating or if they're getting to know men in their life, um, you know, even outside of the dating world, that these are some of the most prominent. These are the ones mm. that we feel like you know, are it, the yeah. most emphasized. Sure, sure. Um, and then there are also masks too that I, I felt were pretty, that could be very destructive um, mm. when they're taken sort of like to their limit. Um, so the first one is the, is the stoic, right? Yep. So it's this idea of being a hero and having, you know, strength and confidence. It's this stereotype of like, you know, the first responder. And while I agree that, you know, so my feminine energy response to that is like, ooh, the protector, right? And I don't know, speaking of the Vegas incident, I just read this story that really brought tears to my eyes. It was this couple, um, they'd been married for over 30 years, they were at the concert, and oh. the shooting started, and the husband literally 
threw himself on top of his wife oh. and 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 died because he no. took the bullets for her. Yeah, I mean it's literally oh he took god. a bullet for his wife and I just Oh my god. And so you know, I'm getting emotional just thinking of it now, but it's not rom- I mean it's romantic, okay, and that's the word that we use to describe that. But here's the thing with with men who will take a bullet for you. You don't have them anymore. They're done. They're, they're gone. gone. They're gone. Their life is over. Exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah. Yeah. So I mean, and that's that's to the extreme, right? But somebody who is an extreme hero, an extreme stoic, and doesn't open up, and is just that you know very powerful sort of you know unmovable force, can also be very frustrating because they don't they're less likely to have these close intimate friendships with other men. Um, you know, you mentioned when your parents got divorced, they were like completely different people. And that's yeah. one of the statistics that I ran into is that um, men are, that 71% of married men in the U S say they only turn to their wives when they're depressed. Wow. And as opposed to women where it's 39% because women have this rich support network of friends. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a study in the UK also that nearly 50% of men over the age of 25 could not name a single best friend. So wow. if they need somebody to talk oh to, yeah, right. Like if they, they lose their business or there's problems in their business, you know, they're battling cancer, they lose a loved one. They have no one to go talk to. So it, through things like divorce breakups or, or if they lose someone, that they really are alone. And it that to me seems so destructive because then they don't, you know, then if, yeah, I, I actually don't really know what to say about that because it's it's so sad to me. Yeah, my uncle took his life. He shot himself in the head with a shotgun uh, because he was living with a stoic mask. He didn't have wow. anywhere to go. To I was, you know, six or seven, so it was a long time ago, but he he had the weight of the world on his shoulders he didn't have a place to emotionally express himself, and he felt like he just had to continue to be strong for his kids, his wife. He had a, a big accounting firm that he had to manage all this money, and he just had to always have it put together, suppress his emotions. No, there could be no crying, no feeling. He just put up a wall and tried to like take care of everything all the time. But the thing he forgot to take care of was himself and his mm-hmm. and his emotional freedom, and. One day he couldn't take it anymore. So he said, I don't know how to process these emotions or these feelings or whatever he was saying to himself. And he said, the weight is too much for me to carry. Boom, I'm dead. And this is the reason why a lot of men, you know, commit suicide. They don't feel like they have a place to emotionally talk to where someone can see them and listen to them and accept them and acknowledge them. And this is why, you know, the studies are, are true. A lot of men don't have these best friends they can talk about. Or women, it sounds like, from my understanding, you are constantly expressing feelings with other girlfriends and oh, have yes. lots of good best friends. And so it's like <laughs> it never on, a daily, on a daily basis, you're expressing, you're verbalizing, you're communicating, you're releasing. And you don't feel like you have to wear this, uh, wear the weight on your shoulders alone. Like you can share it with other girlfriends and, and talk about it. Yeah. And We're very men, self-aware of our yeah. own, our own um, wellness as well. I mean, sometimes yeah. I think there are some instances too where you see a lot of, you see women self-sacrificing, <clears throat> um, but then, you know, you can go online and read all the mommy blogs, yep. like oh, how important it is to take care of yourself before you take care of your family. And with guys, you know, every woman wants to feel taken care of. That's true. But we want a guy who can take care of us but can also take care of himself. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And here, here's what I talk about, about the stoic mask. Uh, you know, 
if you're if the stoic mass is something that resonates with a man listening right now or to a woman who's with a man or a father or brother or son who wears a stoic mask uh what you can expect is you you what you're are suppressing is creating disease disease of the heart the mind and the soul and you need to be clear this by you need to clear this by exposing what you're covering up to the light of openness honesty and vulnerability but if you you're essentially a heart attack waiting to happen if you are living mm -hmm. with a stoic mask you're creating disease within your heart and there's zero emotional freedom you're a prisoner to your feelings and once we take off the mask, it's like a weight is off your shoulders. You can have deeper relationships with both men and women. You can start to heal. You can have a healthier heart because I can guarantee your heart is probably palpitating a lot if you live with a stoic mask. <clears throat> you have the permission to feel finally and you can finally feel that acceptance and a belonging and not just feel like you're this man on an island trying to take care of it and no one can understand you. So that's the challenge is like, yes, it seems romantic to, <clears throat> you know, cover you up your wife and who knows what that situation was. Yeah. Maybe it was such a split second that it, you know, nothing can happen. But like, what's the other option? Can you run and hide to like safe place where you both live, where you both win as opposed to yeah. something else, you know, metaphorically speaking. Or even, you know, on a, on a, you know, everyday level too, you know, you mentioned that guys who are, have the stoic mask are heart attacks waiting to happen. Well, yes. you don't have to take a bullet to pass away. Early, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of women who become widowed at a younger age because the guy just kind of worked himself to death or was just carrying all of this stress and probably all in the name for his family too. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's not a selfish thing. He's probably thinking, okay, I need to provide and, I need to handle this stress on my own. I don't want to put this this burden on my family, but then ultimately it ends up becoming the, the ultimate burden, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's that's a very intense one. <laughs> Let's yeah, move very, on to one Very that, intense, yes. yes. Heart attacks waiting to happen. Yeah. Yes. Um, this next one, I think, is also fairly universal, and it, and it comes in various before, degrees. Actually, oh, yeah. actually, sorry, I don't mm -hmm. want to interrupt you, but before... Sure. We go on to the next one. Yeah. I wanted to make something clear yep. that I think from my personal experience and the men that I've talked to, the reason why some of these men, if so, if you're a woman listening, yes, each human being has responsibility for their actions, their decisions, everything. But just to let you know, women, that men are easily influenced by the women they're attracted to in a relationship as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's mindful for you to be aware of the actual influence and impact you have on the men in your life. Because a lot of times men just want to please women to make make women happy. And when they're not happy, they want to shift in a way to like figure out a way to make them happy, sometimes to their own detriment. So when um, when a man when a woman tells a man, just for an example, when a woman says, um, you know, I, I wish you were more sensitive and I wish you opened up and I wish you would share with me these things and I wish you were more vulnerable in these moments, and how come you never open up? And then when the man starts to do that and the woman says, well, I just need you to be strong in this moment for me right now. I need you to be put together because mm. you can't be falling apart right now because I don't uh -huh. know what's happening in my life. And I just need you to be <laughs> strong and I can't deal with this right now. So you need to show strong and freak out. And then the guy's like, you just told me yeah. you wanted me to open up three days ago. Yeah. Now I'm scared about something and I want to talk to you about it. And you're flipping out on me like – I've got to be always put together. So what the guy is probably hearing is like, okay, I can never show emotion. I need to always be put together. I need to always be strong for her because that one time I did, 
she didn't like me. She didn't want to have sex with me. She didn't, whatever it is that happened. And that's the challenge where I think men want to express themselves. But through conditioning of a lot of things, I'm not just saying the woman is to blame for this. I'm saying for conditioning over a lot of years of everything, it's hard to. And if there doesn't feel like there's a safe space where the man can feel like he's still a hero for opening up and he's still desired sexually and he's still strong, then you better believe he's probably never going to open up afterwards. So I think it's something to be mindful for, for, you know, women who are either in relationship or your your brother or your father or whatever it may be, is to be mindful. If you want someone to be open and sensitive and vulnerable with you, then acknowledge them for that. Don't make them wrong for it. Yeah. I'm so glad that you made that point clear because I completely agree. It's definitely on the responsibility also of women to be mindful of the way that they communicate. And I think sometimes, you know, because I'll give you my perspective, sometimes we don't, if we don't get an immediate gratification and if Uh, their behavior doesn't shift immediately, we think they're just not listening to us. Uh, uh So if it it manifests itself a few days later, we've already forgotten. (laughs) Like, well, so it's a very good point is that sometimes we might think that our words are not having the kind of impact that they are, but they do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the next one is material. So this is interesting because it it is evolutionary, right? So going back in our early, you know, years, um, it was the person with the most resources who was the most attractive, the most important, the most powerful, the most manly. Um, but, and you lay this out in your Ty Lopez example, which I thought was brilliant, um, because it's so, it's just, it's something that a lot of people look at and feel, it's very polarizing, put it that way, and I'll Mm. let you explain it. Um, but I love that the conclusion really that you drew at the end of that chapter was that if all people see is your money, then they don't see your ideas. They don't see your real value. They're sort of every money casts this shadow over who you are as an individual. Exactly. They don't see your they don't see your heart. They don't yep. see your heart. And so, but that's what I'm wondering though, is because I think this idea of building material wealth does feel like a very masculine trait. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was yeah. wondering if you could sort of explain where that, where does that come from and how are, you know, how should we be coping with that? Yeah. I mean, listen again, for me, when I was broke on my sister's couch, um, you know, eight years ago, I was sick and tired for that year and a half of having zero money, relying on my sister to feed me, to house me, you know, and just feeling like a worthless man. I felt like I was just, just worthless. And so I decided I was going to figure out how to get rich. I was like, I'm no longer going to feel this way. I'd never want to feel uh, scarce the rest of my life. So I'm going to go to make as much money as I can. And I started doing whatever it took. I started finding, you know, rich mentors. I started studying it. I started building a business. And it worked within a few years. I started making my first million dollars. Like I kept growing it. I had tons of money in my account. It continued to work. And I was like, wow, this works putting on this material mask. But what was happening to me was I gained 60 pounds. I was like constantly unhealthy. They started calling me fat. They started calling me Lewis for fat Lewis. And it was just like, I didn't have any relationships and everything else in my life was suffering, but I was like projecting this kind of material life that I was now new to and like how amazing it was. And what I realized, and and in this book, I make a lot of examples of 
of different men who wear these masks. And my goal is not to make anyone wrong or bad. My goal is to bring to light of like, how is it working internally for your fulfillment? How is it making an impact in more than just your own life, but for the world? And uh, so I look at some people, especially with Instagram and social media today, there are some of these younger men who are just constantly flashing like their nicest watches and their cars and their houses. And you're attracting people based on what you're putting out there. And if people are attracted to you based on those things you're putting out there, and that's where they want to spend time with you, then they probably don't care as much about how thoughtful you are, how kind you are, your heart, you know, how giving you are, how generous you are. They're more attracted to those material things. And so I think it's just to be mindful and aware. And listen, I'm, you know, I'll post when I'm like flying first class or that I'm on a, you know, private jet with Tony and I'll post these things and, and, and talk about like the nice things that I have in my life or whatever. But it's not like a constant daily thing. And it's not coming from a place of look at how much money I have. It's coming from a place of like, hey, this is just my lifestyle right now. And let me find a way to bring some meaning or inspiration behind something. So when I'm focused on the material mask in an unfulfilling way of giving back and living a life of service and on a vision towards my life, I just feel very unfulfilled. And the money was the money was never enough. I was like, I need to make more. I need to make more. I was like, how much more do I need now? I'm like a 23-year-old kid, 24-year-old kid in Ohio. Like I didn't need more money. I was just afraid that if I was broke again, that people wouldn't love me or accept me. And it's kind of like I think about those material masked men if they lost all their money, would the friends leave as well or would the friends still be there for them? And did they attract friends in the wrong way? Uh, and did they come to their, their house and driving their Lamborghinis with them because they're driven by the material mask as well or because they care about who you are as a person? So that's just something to be mindful of. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, that works for females too, because I remember, um, also being sort of taught by my parents at a young age, you know, it's like, if you attract, if, if your friends, you know, if you, you know, cause I had a friend who had a pool and I was like, oh, everybody's always going over to her house for the pool parties uh-huh. and everything, you know? So it's, I think that's a pretty universal. She was cool because yeah, she had the pool exactly. and she was like desirable because she had the money, but then yeah, she but didn't the have pool the pool. Goes away, right. Would you guys all go hang out with her? Exactly. No. Or wouldn't. was she like a mean girl that actually like made fun of everyone at her pool yeah, and she was kind of made everyone girl. feel like, yeah, made everyone feel like crap as opposed to like just this generous giving soul that you're like, I want to hang out with you even if you have nothing. Yep. And I think that's where it comes down to is like, if we're building wealth to have friends and to like show our worth to the world, yet we have zero self-worth and zero value to give besides the money and material things, then when that stuff's gone, like, I don't know. I just don't know many people that would stick around for that. Yep. So, Lewis, the last one is, uh, <clears throat> well, I'll start this with a little story. So there was um, somebody at work who went on a date with a guy, and, you know, we all asked her the next day, how was your date? And she said, you know, mm-hmm. um, it was tricky because usually, like, I, you know, I'm the one who does quite a bit of talking, and I enjoy listening a lot. And she's like, but it's such a clear delineation. There are dates I've been on where the the person's talking, and I feel like they're really opening up to me, and they're telling me about who they are and it's not like they're telling me their resume, right? Like they give, they give real emotional experience to the date. 
uh, she said, but this one, man, like I just felt like he was mansplaining himself and not, <laughs> not mansplaining like how to do certain things. He was like mansplaining himself. <laughs> like, let me tell you about me and yes. more about me. And you probably don't understand me, but I'm going to explain it mm-hmm. to you very carefully about me. Um, and so I was thinking about, um, you know, sort of this, this idea that you bring up in your chapter on the know-it-all yes. um, about how there's a reason, you know, and Mike Rowe had told you this, there's a reason why people have two ears and one mouth. You should be yeah, exactly. listening, you know, twice as much yeah. as you're talking. Um, <laughs> exactly. But there was a, you know, an interesting part too, where you say, you know, guys, you know, directions are for pansies and, you know, you always have to act like you know what to do. And I, I actually even ran into this myself. Like I, was trying to figure out how to do something. And my friend's like, you know, there's YouTube tutorials on that. Like, I'm just going to watch one and I'll figure out how to do it. I'm like, all right, that's fine. Um, But there is something to be said about admitting that you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, you use the example of James L. Tucher as well and admitting failure and how successful people know how little they know. Yeah. So, yeah, I was sort of wondering what's been your experience with this and what would you sort of tell guys too who think, well, you know, I I like knowing what to do and I like – I want to be able to talk on dates and right. not feel like I, you know, getting critiqued for explaining too much. Exactly. Well, here's the thing. I mean, if you're always projecting that you have the answers for everything and you're the smartest to everything, I just feel like it's really hard to, to relate to that person. It's hard to connect to that person. It's hard to feel comfortable and safe around that person. So if you want to build an intimate relationship, you'll make other people right as well. You'll make other people feel heard as well as opposed to you having to comedy constantly mansplain yourself and like always answer first and always have the answer and talk about being right constantly or what you went where you went to school constantly it's like okay mm. but what's inside your heart yeah like who cares how many degrees you have who cares like that you read everything in the news this morning and you're trying to tell me all the facts of everything all the time like i've got google i don't need you to be the encyclopedia and I think, again, it's if it comes from a place of needing to prove – if it's like a consistent thing every single day, this is how you show up, you're, then why? Why do we feel like we need to do that? Why do we feel like we need to constantly prove that we're smart, that we're smarter than others, that we're worthy because we have this intelligence? Again, the reason I love Google is it, 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 you don't have to know it all anymore. You can search, and so we don't have to put this emphasis on like I have all the facts – why not, instead of being um, you know, the richest person or the smartest person in the world, have the biggest heart? Because so many people are focused on being the know-it-all or being the athlete or being the material person. You know, A lot of people are focused on wanting to become the king or queen of diamonds. But what the world really needs is more king or queens of hearts. Mm. And that's how we build meaningful, intimate, powerful relationships. That's how things start to heal. But when someone comes from a small place of like, I know the answer, I'm always right. Then they start to lie and they actually make up stuff all the time. They'll start to eventually like be like, nope, I'm right on this, but they're not right. They start to, they get in such a delusional place of like power that they can just, well, I've been right most of the time. So I'm probably right here as well. That sometimes that's that's what we see in our political leader where it's just like, nope, this is the truth. I'm mm-hmm. right. It's like, okay, you're making everyone else wrong uh, by having this mentality. And it doesn't build relationship. It doesn't build trust. It doesn't build community. It disconnects you from the world when a man does that. 
So, I mean, again, she probably wasn't excited. Your the coworker probably was not like, yeah, I want to go on another date with this guy like right away. Yeah, not at all. Maybe she did, but it's like, look at your look at, based on results of how you're impacting someone else's heart. Yeah. Are you connecting with them or are you talking the whole time just try to make yourself look good to them? Yeah. So, what are some of the you know, based on, on, on these three and then some of the other masks that you've been able to remove, um, I wonder if you could sort of tell our audience, like, what's waiting for them on the other side? Like, because oh it's gosh. painful, right? Taking them off is painful. Acknowledging, removing. But what, how do you feel different now that you've sort of completed this, this journey? I mean, each mask has its own benefit when you take it off of what you've been missing out on and what's available for you. But essentially, at the end of it, it's freedom. You know, freedom is available for you at the other side when you take off a mask. And listen, I still wear masks today, even though I'm talking about this. It's like they come on, I get triggered, I get defensive. So it's not like I've arrived at this perfect man or something. It's just I'm so much more mindful when it happens. And I just take a moment, I breathe, I evaluate, I journal, I step outside, and then I take it off and come back into the moment and realize what's available. And, it, and it's for me, it's freedom and inner peace and feeling worthy enough, feeling like you matter, having inner peace, feeling fulfillment in your life. Those are a lot of the things that men are missing at the core. You know, obviously at different masters, feeling satisfaction with your achievements when, you know, in the material mask, feeling worthiness, having more gratitude in your life because usually when they're driven to make more money, they're not grateful for what they have. So it's constantly needing to make more. And, um, but at the end of the day, it's freedom, inner peace, self-worth. That's so interesting you say freedom because that is a big part of uh, Tony Robbins' Date with Destiny event where mm. we talk about masculine and feminine energies. And then, I mean, I won't give it away because everybody who has gone to Date with Destiny, this is like a culminating moment. But there is a moment uh, at the end of the day where he talks about relationships where he plays a clip from a famous movie where people yell, Freedom! Freedom. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> See, you said it, not me. And it is so unbelievably powerful hearing every guy in the wow. room shout that because it makes you realize that is ultimately what is at the core of all of that masculine energy, it's freedom. Mm. And I can tell you from a female perspective that women often can feel threatened by that. Like we're, we're turned on by it. It was, it was interesting too, because you look around the room and you see all the women like going, oh my God. <laughs> but the, but it's a little bit scary. Intimidating um, too. Like freedom, what does he got the freedom to do now? Uh, yeah. yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but that's interesting because those three things though, it sounds like that's your new definition of masculinity, freedom, inner peace, fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, my, my definition of, of masculinity is, yeah. is living a life of service. And I think um, when you have that inner peace, that freedom, that fulfillment, you can fully go out and stop thinking about yourself and like what you're not getting and what's who's not acknowledging you and all these things. Or you don't have to be worried about people judging you anymore. You just say, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve in my relationship, in my, in my uh, business, in my career. I'm here to serve with my family. I'm here to serve all of humanity and the world. I'm here to serve the environment. And most importantly, I'm here to serve and be in service to myself and the inner child that's been hurt and to 
the adult that's hurt and make sure that I'm constantly taking time for myself to feel, to develop more confidence, to develop self-worthiness, all these things. Not just saying, okay, and this is what happens. I see this with a lot of women actually where they're like, well, I'm just – I've got too much going on. I've got responsibilities in my life with everyone else, my kids, my husband, mm-hmm. this, this work career that I never take care of myself. So I'm 70 pounds overweight and I eat like crap and I have zero yeah. inner I lo- joy. I've lost touch with my friends. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I've lost my sexuality and all these yeah. things because, but I'm living a life of service. I'm constantly give, 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 yeah. give. It's called martyrdom and it doesn't serve anyone. Exactly. Yeah. And um, if you don't have two hours a day, to take care of yourself or do something to like, you know, feel good and, and move your body and eat well and have those rich, meaningful conversations with friends and family because you're like, well, I just don't have time. Mm. Then you don't have a life if you don't have at least an hour or two hours a day out of 24 hours for yourself. So it's just about carving that out and making sure that we're just really clear on on living a life of service as men, but also making sure we're healing the things inside of us that need the most healing. Yeah. Well, everyone listening, this new book from Lewis Howes is called The Mask of Masculinity, How Men Can Embrace Vulnerability, Create Strong Relationships, and Live Their Fullest Lives. And you just got a little bit of a taste of mm. what is in this book, but there are nine Tastes masks. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and he goes through them very thoroughly. And it's it's really fascinating sort of learning about all these different facets of um, what we sort of have created as this you know masculine construct. Um, so it's really interesting. So pick that up. It's out, uh, in pre-order right now, but, uh, what is it? October 31st, right? Halloween. Yeah. Halloween. We take off our masks. It's a come as yourself party. You know, I did not even make that connection, but now I did. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks Lewis so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so very much. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckheit. Annie Org is our editorial director and occasional host. The podcast is produced by Carrie Song and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Diane Adcock for her creative review. Copyright Robbins Research International.